Hello, dear listener. We are looking to add a new member to our engineering team again. Ideally, we're looking for a senior level mechanical design engineer in the Phoenix area who has experience designing custom automated machines, equipment, and test fixtures. Also, having working experience with controls and system integration would be a big plus. If you'd like to apply or suggest someone, please email us at info at teampipeline.us. The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. When you think about, like, what if there were little green men out there somewhere and we've been sending radio signals, how come they haven't come here? Well, even if they came here once every, you know, 10,000 years, say, for the last billion years, like there would have been nothing, 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 nothing. And now we're spewing out radio, right? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Today we're talking with Tracy Drain, who has worked for over 20 years at NASA on a variety of deep space missions and is currently the lead flight systems engineer for the Europa Clipper mission at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, in Pasadena, California. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I've been super excited to talk to you. I've got tons of questions, and we probably won't get through all of them, which is fine. But let's start with the question that I ask everyone at the beginning, which is, how did you decide to become an engineer? It was an interesting path for me to decide to become an engineer. I was one of those kids who was interested in a variety of things. At one point, I thought, maybe I'd be a lawyer. Maybe I'd be a pilot. Maybe I would be an archaeologist. I was kind of all over the place. But one of the kind of constant threads through my interest when I was much younger was science fiction. My mom introduced me to Star Trek, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, all of that great stuff. And I really did love math and science through most of school. So when I was around the junior and high school and was starting to think about what I would study in college, I wanted something that would give me some kind of path to working in the space industry. And back then, I'm old enough, you said 20 years at the lab, old enough, we didn't have the internet. And so I didn't actually know what an astronomer did all day and who would hire me to just go study space. And so engineering seemed like a safer option. And inside engineering, I was even too chicken to go for aerospace because the thing we knew about the aerospace industry is that it had its ups and downs and what if I couldn't get hired, blah, blah, blah. So I studied mechanical engineering since that would be nice and broad. And I figured you need mechanical engineers to build spacecraft, right? So that's how it came about. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we all know that mechanical engineers are the best engineers. Of course, you might have nuanced opinions about that as you move <laughs> further along in your course, but... Uh, Mechanical engineers are all friends of mine. What? All right. Well, one of your responsibilities at JPL has been to identify mission system fault trees. In other words, identifying things that could go wrong and figuring out ways to prevent or, or handle them. Can you share uh, maybe a specific example of a risk that your team identified and then what you did to mitigate that risk? I can. Yeah. So even though I studied mechanical engineering in school, when I got hired at the lab, I got hired in as a systems engineer. And I'm sure we'll talk more about what systems engineering is, but it's kind of thinking across the broad flight system to determine all sorts of things. And that what could go wrong is one of those threads. And when we develop a fault tree, you kind of start with a main critical thing that must go right. Like launch. How about that? <laughs> We'd like launch to go right. <laughs> and for launch to be considered to be successful, several things have to happen. You need to be on the right trajectory to wherever you're going. You need to be power positive, not running out of power. You need to be able to communicate with the ground. And you have to have your thermal system stable, like nothing's running off getting way too hot or running off getting way too cold. So if we take the power, for example, in order to have really healthy power on your spacecraft, especially if you're solar powered, like you're up the Clipper or Juno or Kepler or MRO, the other things that I've worked on, if you have big arrays that need to get deployed, they have to be folded up like origami to fit inside the launch vehicle fairing. Once you launch, a bunch of things have to happen for those solar arrays to get deployed and get pointed at the sun so you can be generating power for your spacecraft. And there's all sorts of things that could not happen in order to get your solar arrays deployed, like the hinges might get stuck or the command might not go out or the 
which is restraints that keep them locked together might not fire. So we think through all of those things and then we try to figure out what can you do in the design so that the failure can't happen literally, or if it can happen, is there a redundant part or something you can swap to so that the spacecraft will still do its job? So when we think through the fault trees, we end up with hundreds of different little things that we have to go in and figure out how to design out or to mitigate. And then you have to figure out how to prove it's gonna work either via analysis or test or some other thing. So it's a, it's a big thought process and it's lots of fun. It's a little bit scary. It can totally keep you up at night, but it's, it's one of the more interesting parts of my job. It, uh, is the fault tree more or less an FMEA? Ah, so yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. So for people who don't understand uh, what an FMEA is, but we think of it as the failure modes. Oh, wow. Failure modes, effects analysis. Why can't I remember that phrase right now? <laughs> but um, that is more of a bottoms up thing. The fault tree is top down. Think of what you need to work and then start drilling down to the different levels of branches. The FAMICA oh, okay. is more of a, okay. what happens if this, inside a component, this resistor fails, this capacitor fails, this, right? And then you figure out what it does to the output of that component and how it impacts the system. And so we have to look at all the famicas as well and then figure out whether we have got them joining together from the top down and the bottoms up and didn't miss anything that we should be taking care of at the system level. Got it. So your teams will look at, at both then? That's correct. Yes. Okay. And then figure out if they match up and if there's uh, a disjointed section somewhere, you figure out, well, how do we make sure that uh, it doesn't stay disjointed yeah. like that and we actually mitigate the exactly. risk? Exactly. That's a okay. good way to make sure that we're not dropping something through the cracks. Okay. Um, also, before I go on, I should say uh, congratulations in general on the Perseverance mission. I don't know if you were directly involved with that one, but just as a part of the NASA organization, what a, a tremendous success. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I personally did not work on the rovers. However, way back in my career, I did work on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter for about six years. And if you were watching the coverage, you might have remembered hearing MRO mentioned as one of the orbiters that was being a relay asset as it was as as the rover gets down on the ground and MRO used their high resolution camera to take a picture of the rover on its parachute as it was going in which is pretty amazing to me that we can still do that kind of thing too so teeny yeah. tiny like okay. way back in the past i had fingerprints on an orbiter that helped <laughs> <laughs> that's right well on the shoulders of giants right that's right very cool. Um, you you were also part of the Kepler project, which was the the mission um, to to hunt for Earth like planets orbiting other stars in our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, I guess first of all, were any found, and then uh, how would NASA know that an Earth like planet was found? In other words, what are the, the the parameters that you look for, and how are they detected by your instruments? Yeah, so on Kepler, for those of for folks out in the audience who have not heard of the Kepler mission, please do yourself a favor and go look up what it has discovered because it just really revolutionized our understanding of how common planets are in our galaxy. So you can think about it this way. There are lots of ways that people had in the past, since like the late 80s, early 90s, to be able to find exoplanets, which are planets orbiting other stars. And some of the ways kind of make it easier to find super big planets that are really close to their star. If you think there, there's this like Doppler effect you can get, if, if you see us, if you're looking at a star and there's a really massive planet orbiting it, that planet is tugging on the star and makes a wobble in the star's position relative to the earth. And you can detect that and use that in order to learn some things about the planet. But as you can imagine, like stars are whopping big. <laughs> so you have to have a pretty massive planet really close to the planet to be, or to the star to be able to see that. Not gonna be Earth-like, not gonna be habitable. The thing that Kepler did, and there's, there's lots of other methods which, are, which have their pros and cons. The thing that Kepler did was to look at the light coming from a star, measure the brightness of that star. And for planets that are aligned right, so they're kind of, think of a hula hoop going around the star with us looking at the hula hoop edge on, and the planets are passing between the star and the sun, then it's like a little dot that blocks some light coming from that star. And if you have a sensitive enough way to measure the light coming from the star, you can catch the dip in brightness as the planet goes by. And using combining follow-up observations from the ground, you can use those things to determine how big the planet is, how close it is to its star, what its orbit is. And so scientists can figure out the habitable zone around a star, which is not too close so that you won't be burned to a crisp like Mercury, not too far away so that you won't be frozen like Pluto, but in the right distance so that if 
you had an atmosphere and if you had water, it could be liquid on the surface. So that's that's the thing that we're looking for. And the thing that's important about the size is that if you're too small, like mercury, you can't hold on to enough of an atmosphere because like the, the hydrogen and oxygen, those things will leak out. But if you're too big, you'll hold on too much of that and you turn into a gas giant like Jupiter, like Saturn, which has way too dense of an atmosphere, not, not really much ground down there <laughs> in order to be able to harbor life. But if you're the right size, then you have enough gravity. Maybe if, you, if you're still molten inside, you can develop a magnetic field, hold on to an atmosphere. Those are the things that make scientists go, yippee, <laughs> that you can find something <laughs> that's in the right size and in the right habitable zone around their star. And so when Kepler first started, the way they pointed the spacecraft, it was pointed at a patch of sky in the constellation Cygnus the Swan, about the size of your palm held up against the sky. It was looking at well over 100,000 stars, monitoring them for that dip in brightness. And, we, and they chose it so that there were three transiting planets, we call it, that are lined up right, that we could see them pass in front of the star. And so, but they were like, really big, really close to their stars with an orbit period of like a couple of days, right? With their year was a couple of days long. And so those popped right out of the data. We knew that the instrument was working, super exciting. And then you just have to watch for months and months and months. And over time, the mission was in its primary mission for about four years. They built up this huge data set and literally have discovered hundreds of planets, like hundreds. And I think really? if you look at the number of planets that are in the data set, it's somewhere around... 4,700 or so. I haven't looked in a long wow. time. And the number of planets that have been confirmed by follow-up observations is well over 2,000. And there's a certain smaller number that is like Earth-sized and in the habitable zone, which is more than you might think. Um, I'm going to say a number, but again, I haven't looked in a long time. I think it might be in the 50 range, but go take a look. Um, there's all sorts of information online, which is um, just fantastic. And the thing about the Kepler data, too, they did some other things in their secondary mission once they lost a couple of reaction wheels and needed to point in a more, and let's say, challenging way at different parts of the sky. But from the primary mission, the number of planets that were found just in that small patch of sky, if you extrapolate that across the whole Milky Way galaxy, the scientists have said that on average, like not every star has a planet, but on average, there's one for every star. Some stars have none. Some stars have six. Some stars have more. Um, and if you like just multiply that out by the number of stars that are in our Milky Way galaxy, there's probably something like well over 100 billion with a B planets oh. in our galaxy like anywhere you look in the sky is wait 100 billion planets, planets or 100 billion, billion potentially planets. habitable planets uh, planets in general the last time okay. i read many years ago when they were talking about potentially earth-sized stars that are sorry earth-sized planets that are in the habitable zone it was something more around the you know single digit million number but still wow. like wow a still. giant number oh that's <laughs> yeah. staggering maybe it was single digit billion i don't remember it was a large number it's a insane. lot anyway so talk yeah. about revolutionizing our understanding of how common planets are in the oh, galaxy fascinating just bananas yeah so by measuring the light you can determine approximately how big the planet is and its its relative position uh with regard to its star is that there right? are a few things you had to put together like the scientists had done some studies of the stars and so they know roughly the size of the stars and then when you look at the dip in brightness that gives you like you know you, you put a tiny area over a bigger area you can kind of calculate the size of the planet that way and then yeah. there were some other things they did me engineer not scientist <laughs> that they could do to help figure <laughs> out the density of the planets and I think in order to determine the the how close they are to the star, they had to combine that with follow-up observations. There's, there's things they had to do, not okay. just with data okay. from Kepler, to figure out the whole set of things that they understand about the planet. Now, what they can't do, and what I am personally excited to see a mission come later, is actually determine what the planet, like have direct evidence of what the planet is made of. And so if you take a planet that has an atmosphere and then you shove it in front of its star, the light from the star comes through the atmosphere. And if you can subtract the spectrum of the star from what you get when the planet's in front of the star, then you can get a sense of what the atmosphere is made of. Oh my God, oh, interesting. <laughs> and I know that there are <laughs> proposals for missions to be able to do that kind of thing. And like people wow. are gonna lose their minds when we're first able to actually get a sense of atmospheres of any of the planets that we know that are out there. And with today's technology, can you also tell if there is water and an atmosphere? 
Uh, that I don't know. Do not know the answer to that. I personally would be surprised, but then I mean, not a scientist, so I don't know all the details of what they can do with instrumentation. <laughs> I think that Still. you'd be able to tell if there was a signature of water vapor in the atmosphere, but okay. um, as far as whether there's liquid water on the surface, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long would it take with you know current technology for us to reach one of the, the closest <laughs> of one of these planets? Is that is that like a million years or a so thousand like, years? What? Yeah, it's it's a obnoxiously big number. And so the way I think about it is this: the yes, there are ways that we know of that could theoretically get spacecraft to go faster. But the one I like to think about that people are somewhat familiar with is the Voyager spacecraft, which is traveling. There's two of them, right? Heading out out of the solar system that are traveling at something like 35,000 miles an hour. And if you, if you could point those in the right direction to meet up with the closest star to us, which is four light years away, it would take, a little under 80,000 years. <laughs> wow. So, it's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> and most of the planets that Kepler has found, at least when I was looking at their data many years ago, were in the, you know, 200 to 2,000 light years away. So not exactly next door neighbors. I know that there's a more recent mission that has been launched that is looking for much closer planets. But still, it's, yeah, it's frightening. <laughs> I'll, I'll is is there any um, bleeding edge research out there with that theorizes in the future how we might be able to uh, get our spacecraft going much, much, much faster? Or <laughs> are there not even any theories at this point? It's just so far beyond us still. Yeah. So I think you put enough maybe mites and theories in there. <laughs> <laughs> right, enough disclaimers. <laughs> yeah, but outside my field, and I haven't gone to read extensively to, to be comfortable telling you something that I would be like, go look at this, because, yeah, not Fair enough. to say, yeah, I got nothing. Fair <laughs> I would like to think so, right? Like, I got my interest in space by watching science fiction, so please, somebody, make that happen. But <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay, for this next question, I want to make it real clear that I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be doing this, but how does space exploration help the human race you know like why are we doing this why why explore deep space why explore mars is there a singular goal that we have um yeah i, I just i would love to hear your thoughts on that yeah so i personally have two different opinions right i'm a person who really resonates with that inner human curiosity to just know about things right when you look at little kids running around discovering things that there's there's something about learning a new thing, understanding how something works that feels intrinsically worthwhile just for its own sake, even if it isn't yeah. going to show a, a specific benefit to you being able to find food or shelter or any of those things. And so there, there's that intellectual just scratching that itch of knowing, right? That's not very satisfactory for some people. <laughs> it is for me, but not for everybody. So the one that I find to be a little more practical is that we live on this planet. We just talked about how far it is to get to some of the other places that might potentially be habitable. And we have really better not trash it because it's going to be hard for us to go, you know, pull up stakes and move somewhere else. And so it, it's very difficult to understand a complex system like our planet and its climate when you only have this one system to look at. Mm. And I think about scientists examining places like Venus, where there's been this runaway greenhouse effect, and then studying places like Mars, which we think might have been much warmer, much wetter in its past, but its atmosphere leaked off, and now it's kind of, you know, you don't want to build a summer home there. We want to go because it looks cool, but it'd be really hard to live on. And so when you study those places and you're able to refine your theories of how planets develop and evolve and what impacts the different things that are going on have on their climate, it makes you much more likely to be better able to understand the Earth. So in my opinion, that's one of the big drivers to study things in space. It helps us take care of our home a bit better. Great answer. I hadn't heard that one before. Very insightful. Speaking of Mars, do you think it's, it's, is it practical to expect that within the next, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years that we could terraform Mars and people will start colonizing and living there? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? I really love, what is it, uh, Ken Stanley Robinson's Blue Mars, Red, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, but oh, those are so, so good. Um, so I'm speculating, right, as a person who loves science fiction, <laughs> I think sure. that the, the, there are theories that make sense to me personally. But when we talk about short timescales, that's when it starts to fail my last test, right? And I think about okay. it this way. There are, there are scientists and adventurers who do like exploratory trips to places that are very inhospitable on the earth, like the Gobi Desert, like the Himalayas, mm -hmm. right? Places where 
you don't need a spacesuit, but it is very difficult to get there. It's very difficult to survive. It's difficult to grow food and have water and all those things. And when we think about, if you ask somebody, do you think we can go set up a sustainable colony in the Gobi Desert or at the top of Mount Himalaya in the next however many years, you think, well, probably, but wow, that'd be hard. And why would you do that, <laughs> right? It's, yeah, it's easier to understand the complexities. And then when you think about a place like Mars, it's even harder to get stuff there. It's even harder to grow. Like you need a space, you need air, you need all of these things. And so when I personally, again, this is the opinion of Tracy Drain and I'm as I think about short timescales, it seems difficult. And also growing up, I heard, you know, we're going to have a sustainable outpost on Mars by 2000. And what year is it? <laughs> but if you push the timescales a bit more, what about 100 years? What about 500 years? What about 1000 years? Well, wow, then all sorts of possibilities open up. And I tend to think of the kinds of work that we're doing in space exploration now as necessary baby steps, if we're ever going to get to those kinds of situations in the future. So I, I say, in general, yes, but be careful about the timescales. Yeah. What, what do they say that uh, mankind typically um, uh, overestimates what we can accomplish in the short term, but underestimates what we can accomplish, uh, what we can accomplish in the long term? I would believe it. And my husband would say that applies to me, too, because whenever he asks me, how, how much longer are you going to be working tonight? I say one hour and then three hours later. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's a common thing. All across yeah, the yeah. Yeah, that sounds like, oh, this is the final design review. Final design. Fi uh, three times later, this is the final design. That's it's always right. the final yep, yep. design. <laughs> Until it's not. All right. Well, a, a lot of your experience has been with risk mitigation, which, which necessarily includes verification and validation testing. This is something that is near and dear to my heart since the core of our business is developing the equipment to do this sort of testing. So first of all, can you explain what are verification and validation and uh, then can you maybe walk us through how these activities are, are carried out using um, an example, hopefully from, from one of your past projects? Yeah, I think about it this way. When we are going to design a very complex system, one of the things that you have to do is set all the specifications up front so that when you're cutting metal or wiring harness, you're actually doing the right thing. So for folks who aren't familiar with the word requirement, I think of it as rules the design has to follow in order to eventually meet the objectives that you're going for. And verification is when you're doing whatever testing, analysis, inspection, all of those things to show that your final design actually satisfies those original requirements that you wrote. And validation is near and dear to my heart because it's, okay, so we're smart, but we don't know everything. And maybe if you think about your top level objectives, great. Perhaps you didn't design the define the requirements absolutely perfectly so that it will actually do the thing that you were looking for. So validation is kind of thinking about, so forget about the requirements, pretend you didn't write any, <laughs> and think about what it is that your spacecraft or your car or your whatever needs to do, and then develop additional testing, inspection, analysis, whatever, to show that your final design is actually gonna do those top level things. And if I give you an example, say, and I'll pick on the requirement side, something very simple. Say that we said our solar arrays need to meet a certain power generation of X, right? And so you can you can take the arrays, you can stick them in a chamber, you can shine fake sunlight at them and measure the power output and say, okay, did I meet the requirement that I wrote or not? Check. But on the validation side, you're like, okay, great. So if, if I'm generating that much power, can I actually do all of the things with the spacecraft that I said I was going to do? Like we're going to put it in orbit around Jupiter. It's going to be at this attitude with the solar arrays away from the sun for this long or toward the sun for this long. And then you generate an analysis that shows in a power scenario, okay, I'm generating this much power and now I'm on the batteries and now I'm on the solar arrays. And you show going through a step-by-step, -step, here are all the activities the spacecraft are going to do, whether it all hangs together in the end and you end up with enough energy to do all that stuff, or if you don't, <laughs> because it doesn't matter what you wrote in the requirements, I'm supposed to generate X amps, right? that um, if, if it doesn't hold together in a full scenario with all those details, then you might still have to go and make a change. Yeah, okay. Well, you're part of the Europa Clipper mission now, um, which will conduct detailed reconnaissance of Jupiter's moon Europa and investigate whether the, the icy moon could harbor conditions suitable for life. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what are conditions like on Europa? I mean, is it just one big solid ice shell around the entire moon? How, how thick is that shell? Is there definitely an ocean underneath or is that yet to be verified? What's going on there? 
yeah, you definitely sound like the person who was like talking to the scientists to figure out why we even want to send a spacecraft there in the first place. <laughs> and so for people who haven't seen a picture of, of Europa, please go find one. It's very cool. It looks a bit like a like a cue ball, only when you look at the the pictures that have like some exaggerated contrast, I'll say, it's kind of like a dirty cue ball with a bunch of scratches all over it and some areas where it looked like someone dropped it in the dirt, right? So it's this ice moon that scientists are pretty sure um, has a thick shell of ice. We don't know how thick it is. That's one of the things that Europa is intending to help us get more of a sense of. Could be 25 kilometers, could be 50 kilometers. I am making those numbers up. Scientists, please don't hate me. But we're trying to figure out exactly. <laughs> Here come the trolls. <laughs> and down the down inside, underneath that thick ice shell, or however depth, the scientists are pretty sure that there's a ocean, like a moon-wide ocean of liquid water that's probably more than twice the Earth's oceans combined. And so way down at the bottom, they think there's probably a rocky floor. And what's super exciting about that is you have this moon that, and and the the reason they think it's still liquid, by the way, hopefully I don't mess this up too badly, me, engineer, not scientist, but the moon going around Jupiter, the differences in tidal forces that it feels kind of like squishes and pulls it. And when you think about taking a paperclip and bending it back and forth and back and forth until it breaks and then you touch the end, you can feel that heat there of the friction from the yeah. uh, material moving together. That's kind of what's happening to Europa as it orbits. And so that heat on the inside keeps the water melted and maybe down there is enough of a heat source that you can think about on the Earth's oceans where you get those hydrothermal vents. And so way down in the water where there's not any sunlight getting down there, but you have this energy source from the hydrothermal vents and you have all this water and you have the necessary chemical ingredients for life as we know it, Jim, which is uh, CHINOX is the acronym. Let's see if I can get this right. Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, and those things mixing together with the energy source could potentially develop into all of the molecules that can combine in ways that you need to form life. And so scientists think it's possible that all of those ingredients exist down under the icy shell of Europa. And we're super excited to try to study the moon with our spacecraft. We're not landing um, yet. There were, we have plans at uh, NASA in general for a lander at some point in the future, but we'll be we won't actually be orbiting the planet, the moon constantly. It's too difficult to do that because the moon is like buried down inside one of the nasty parts of Jupiter's radiation field. We're actually orbiting Jupiter in this big orbit that we tweak in order to fly by Europa about 50 times during the mission. So we kind of fly by really close. And when I say really close, when I first joined the mission and heard what our altitudes are going to be, I'm like, Really? Is there a zero in there somewhere? <laughs> I think our lowest passes are in the 25 kilometer range, and there are some that are 50 kilometers and 100, which is like, wow. <laughs> think about something that far away from the Earth and then using Europa and Jupiter's gravity to do low flybys like that. So we're, we're going to yeah. like buzz the surface and then like examine it with all of our instruments that the spacecraft is festooned with in order to learn things about the magnetic field, about the, the field of particles that we're flying through. We have a radar, that's one of the key things to help us understand what the ice cell thickness might be. There's spectrometers to let us get a sense of what material is on the surface because those cracks that have those darker materials seem to be places where when you're like stressing the moon with those tidal forces we talked about, that water could be coming up and then like spilling onto the surface and refreezing. One of the reasons why that moon is so generally smooth, when you look at our moon, you can see crater after crater after crater after crater because <laughs> there's not like wind and rain and water weathering the surface. But when you look at Europa, it's pretty smooth. It does have some craters, especially that one giant, really pretty one, but um, not that many. The surface is pretty geologically young because it seems to be getting resurfaced with upwellings of water over time. Interesting. Uh, How, when you send a spacecraft off into deep, deep space, how do you ensure or at least mitigate the risk that some kind of space de- debris, you know, like a, an asteroid or something doesn't crash into it and just destroy it yeah. before it gets to its destination? Yeah, when we're sending spacecraft from the Earth to somewhere else, there's all sorts of things we have to think about in the space environment that the spacecraft is going to have to get through in order to get to its destination. There's the radiation environment that it's in. There's tiny little micrometeoroids, which you're talking about. So the kinds of things that we do is some areas need to be better shielded than others in order to make sure if there are these tiny impacts that it won't cause damage. 
But um, when it comes to bigger things like asteroids, this is something that I found super fascinating and, and is a fun thing that I was disillusioned with in terms of science fiction. Because in movies, when you watch spacecraft going through the asteroid belt, you see people having to swerve and avoid asteroids and like these huge boulders all over the place. But when I looked into what the asteroid belt distribution actually is, for, for any asteroid of, of a size that's big enough for us to even know it's out there, the, the distance between individual ones is just obnoxious. It's like a couple hundred thousand kilometers. It's, oh, it's wow. just huge. Okay, so and there's so, not much risk of crashing into them. There really is. It's like we don't even have to be like, where is the asteroid? <laughs> We're like, you just do your thing. And you'd, you'd be like winning the lottery if you actually hit one of those suckers on your way wow. to somewhere. Yeah. Well, that works out well for your team, right? It makes things easier. Yeah. Okay. Does. Going back to Europa, um, if there is an ocean under that ice shell, and if we did find life there, what, what do you think that we do with it? What, what do we, <laughs> I know there, this is a future scenario that we know nothing about, so it's almost an unfair question, but what, what do you think we would do next? Yeah, so totally future scenario again, since Europa Clipper is not landing and the lander that we're going to send down, I, we're still, I'm not involved in that one. People are talking about the details of what it'll be able to do. I don't know the likelihood of us actually being able to find things, even if they are way down there under the surface, right? But I'll talk about it as if I were writing a science fiction movie, because okay. I love those. That um, personally, I think that finding life somewhere else in our solar system will just be very paradigm shifting, right? Because we have this idea that Earth is special, that life is only evolved here, that it can't be anywhere else. And the instant you have a real example that isn't just someone's theory of it really happening somewhere else, it will just change the way we think about life in general, in my opinion. Now, there will be this conversation that you might have heard of this, oh, I'm going to mess up the phrase, that um, there actually has been an exchange of materials between bodies in our solar system, right? There are asteroid or meteorites that have landed on the Earth that we can tell have come from Mars, right? So it's not like they're completely separate. And we've learned things like, well, you'd say, well, wouldn't the journey from Mars to Earth have just sterilized anything on there anyway? But there's this really interesting story that I heard about from the lunar lander days where there was, a, I think, a component in a camera maybe that was left on the surface of the moon for some time. And then one of the later missions brought it back and they did a scraping and like stuck some things to, in a culture and they could actually get bacteria spores that had been left on the surface of the moon for like at least a year. I can't remember how long. Go look at the story. Fact check people. But uh, they survived. They had gone. Bacteria can go into the spore like um, states where they are dormant. And then when they get back to a place that has nutrients and whatever else they need to grow, they can grow again. So there's this interesting idea that that this exchange of materials over long periods of time in bodies of the solar system could have spread life around. And so I think it'll add some urgency <laughs> to people trying to figure out, is that what could have happened? Like if, if we were to find evidence of life on Europa, could that thing have happened or could they have been independently developed? Like, I don't know, but I will be like sitting back with a bowl of popcorn watching the scientific discussions <laughs> happening. <laughs> that kind How of fun to think about right. that. Well, as Jurassic Park says, life will find a way, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, shoot. I had a question in mind. What was it? It was about, we were talking about potential life on Europa. Oh, I know what it was. In general, among the circles that you run in, basically at, at NASA, is there a consensus where people tend to think, you know what, statistically, there probably is life somewhere else in the universe? Or are most people in the camp of, no, that's crazy, there is no such thing as life or green man or anything like that, we're alone, we're special. Is there a consensus one way or the other? Yeah, so I personally have no idea if there was a consensus, and I would be shocked to my toes if there was. Okay. <laughs> but I will tell you my own personal view on that, right? Um, and it comes from my experience working on Kepler and kind of being embedded in the, the search for planets and the thing we talked about earlier about how many planets there are, but how far away they are, and also about just the just time and how deep time is. And, and I love those things where people say, if you compress all of the history of the earth, like from the formation of the earth to now into a single year, then, then people will appear on the, I can't remember what the, what the value, but it's like way toward the end. It's like a second to midnight or something insane. And when you think about like, what if there were little green men out there somewhere and 
we've been sending radio signals. How come they haven't come here? Well, even if they came here once every, you know, 10,000 years, say, for the last billion years, like there would have been nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Great point. And now we're spewing out radio, right? And so I personally think that even if there were a possibility for there to be not just microbial life out there, but other kinds of life that we would recognize as something that could be interacted with, A, so freaking far away, I personally cannot see how we're ever going to get there, and B, just we could be separated by millions and billions of years, and so yeah, the likelihood yeah. of, of people being around at the same time in different places and able to communicate to me seems vanishingly small. So I tend to be quite a bit of a pessimist on that scale, but my own personal opinion. That's really interesting. I had never thought about the fact that we've been sending out radio signals for what, 50 years or something, which is nothing, right? Like it's like a nanosecond or something in the grand scheme of the universe. Yeah. Huh. I think it might be almost 100 years now. What was it like in the 1930s, maybe? But, but anyway, it's still a nanosecond, right? So, yeah. yeah, right. Relatively <laughs> speaking, not much time. Okay. Well, you've been an engineer for a long time now. How focused should we be, should engineers in general, especially younger engineers be, on intentionally finding our role versus just kind of letting ourselves fall into the, the right mm -hmm. role organically? Oh, that's such a good question. And my thoughts on that have totally evolved over the years. And I tend to be a little bit in the organic camp. And some of it is because, right, when we study engineering, in my opinion, the main thing you get out of a bachelor's degree in engineering is not here's some equations <laughs> that I know how to use very well. I can distress them out. It's not really that. It's really learning how to learn and learning how to think logically. I think in engineering, either in mechanical or chemical or electrical or computer science, like pick your favorite thing, really is there to train you in how to think and how to be able to take massive problems that no one's ever solved before and develop a framework for attacking them and how to break them into smaller pieces in, in order to make your way towards a solution instead of sitting there just throwing something at the wall to see what sticks. <laughs> and then I think a master's degree in engineering is to kind of put a polish on that and also to, to train you better how to think more independently, depending on what school you go to and, and how strong they are in terms of labs and independent studies or projects and all of that stuff. A lot of the undergrad classes can be like, open the top of your head, pour in some information, close the top of your head and, and like do this problem. Now do 12 problems just like it and not so much in the um, find your own path. Like here's, here's a very ill-defined problem, go figure out what to do with it, which is kind of what we need to do in our everyday jobs. And then a PhD, right, is, is pushing that even further and being able to like extend what we know um, in general so that other people can use that and build on the work later. And so when it comes to how definite we should be at exactly what we want to do, I think that because that engineering background makes you capable of doing so many different things, it's not necessary to really neck down individually or immediately. And I also think that, I mean, there's internet now, which there was when I was growing up, but it's hard to just know what's out there and to know what yeah. kinds of things you could go do. And for the people who are coming out of school right now, five years from now, there might be opportunities which literally don't exist right now. For me, studying mechanical engineering, but knowing that I was intending to go towards the space direction, when I interviewed at JPL in 2000, that was the first time I had heard the phrase systems engineer, literally. <laughs> I was like, so what's that? And as they described to me, I'll take this opportunity to say a little bit about what that job is, is the person who needs to know enough about all of the different things that need to work together in a complex system to get something done so that we can make the right trades and decisions, both in design and both as we're testing and things aren't working right, what are our options, what can we do? I know it's going to cause some pain over here, but it'll be better overall for the system. Same thing in operations. We launch spacecraft that don't do exactly what we think they will all the time. What are our options? What can we do about it? I really enjoy that kind of jack of all trades generalists and being able to work with the people who have deep detailed knowledge in specific areas but might not necessarily appreciate those cross-system links to understand why picking something that to resolve a problem that is the best for their area might suck somewhere else and therefore not be the ultimate best thing to do for the overall mission. I had no idea that that job existed when I was studying engineering. Super thrilled to hear about it when I was in the interview and like begged and pleaded to get hired and then worked with a lot of very experienced systems engineers to figure out how to do that job. And so in the rest of my career, right, 
it's really cool for engineers working at the lab because there's so many projects going on at any given time. We need systems engineers both at the flight system level where you're trying to figure out how the thermal system and the telecom system and power and flight software and all of those things work together. But you also need them one step up at the project system level where you're trying to figure out how the spacecraft and the instruments and the launch vehicle and the ops folks and the ground data system all work together. But also the next level down, where if you take something like attitude control, you have a bunch of different sensors that the spacecraft will use to figure out where it is, like star cameras or sun uh, sensors or whatever. And you have a bunch of different actuators, like the little reaction wheels that you spin to make yourself spin the opposite direction of the spacecraft or thrusters. You have to figure out how all those things work together as their own system as well. And so it's cool to me that when you get trained in the thought processes that are very valuable to a systems engineer in terms of design and solving problems, you can apply it across all levels in something like a spacecraft design. And I'm sure that the same thing goes for other elements of industry like aircraft or cars or or, or factories, right? Systems engineering thinking is really cool. So I'm still answering your question about whether people should have a definite goal or be organic about it. I think that as you are working in your field and seeing the other things that are going on around you, you learn more about what it is that you could be contributing to. You learn more about what it is that you're interested in. Opportunities come and go at times that you can't really define. So it pays to understand the kinds of things you're interested in and then just keep an eye out for when things prop up and be open-minded to be able to move into them and learn and grow as you go. When you started your position at, at JPL, you were interviewed by some people, maybe a lot of people, maybe there were multiple interviews mm-hmm. and they determined if the whole, whole day, day yeah. <laughs> determined if it, is Tracy a good for the fit for this position. Tell me a little bit about the opposite. You have, you mentioned to me before that you felt like it was really important for you to interview your bosses and feel like, you know, is, is that a good fit from, from the other side? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I can. And the interesting thing is, I didn't actually know that when I was first coming on board. That's something that I learned more when I was inside JPL and then trying to decide what next roles I would be taking as I was moving through projects. And so when I was first interviewing to get hired, I mean, I was, you know, nine. (laughs) When we're baby engineers coming out of school, you're just terrified. You just want everyone to like you. Please hire me. Right. What do you people need to hear from me? (laughs) (laughs) But it was it was really I think the thing that I did understand and I'm really glad about was that the interview process is so difficult because people they have this tiny window of time with you. They're trying to feel out your technical knowledge. They're trying to feel out things as intangible as your ability to learn. Systems engineering is very, very important to be a good communicator because you're listening to people working very specifically in their areas, not necessarily having good insight into other areas. And you have to be able to integrate what they're telling you, integrate what a bunch of people are telling you, figure out the right decision, ask the right question, like all of those things. And if you don't like working with people, like don't do that job, <laughs> go do something else. And so I think it's from, from an interviewer's perspective, they can kind of sense those kinds of qualities with someone when they're just on the phone in an interview setting. Later on in my career, when I was on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter for about six years, and then after that was going to go off and work on Kepler for a couple of years, um, I got a, a, an email from someone with the subject of, your next job. <laughs> like, who are you and what are you talking about? And I got to meet with that person who was then Riley Drury, the chief engineer for Kepler at the time, and got to listen to him describe what was going on with the mission. It was about a year and a half for launch, why they wanted to bring me on board, what they wanted me to do. And I had an opportunity to ask him some things about his role, what it is that he was doing, what the rest of the team was like in the project culture, because when I mean, I was only on Kepler for two years, but I was on MRO for six and then later Juno for nine. And when you're in the midst of a specific team of people for that long a period of time and you're spending you know, eight hours with these folks every day, more time than you spend with your friends and family at home a lot of the time, then you want it to be an environment that you that you find um What's the word I'm looking for? You don't want it to suck. I'll just say that <laughs> That's a good but way to put it. You want to work with good people who sure, are yeah. supportive of each other, who like to have a lot of fun, right? It, yeah. just, it makes a big difference. I think that it's easier for people to be creative when they're in a vi- an environment like that versus one that they like really don't want to be in all day long. And so... I always now, when I'm about to go take on a different role, I go like talk to various and sundry people on the projects that I'm considering going to just to feel out what it's like. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about mental fortitude. I mean, you have a stressful job. 
there is a lot riding on decisions that you make. And uh, I imagine that you feel a lot of stress at times, or at least mm-hmm. I would if, if I were you. And I think a lot of people can probably identify with, with that feeling. Uh, based on the role that you have and, and how your career has progressed at NASA, I'm going to assume that you have gotten to be fairly good at dealing with that stress. Is that attributable to just the fact that you have really great DNA, you got lucky? <laughs> or is this like something that you have intentionally a skill that you've developed over time? Yeah, no one's asked you the question in quite that way before. Um, so, you know, I do think I, I was always one of those just disgustingly happy kids. <laughs> so I think in a way, uh, some of it is a little bit baked into my personality, right? But okay. so, and then I'll tell you in, in the middle of my career, what my thought process was like, is it has evolved recently in the last year because um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. So th- yes, there's a lot of stress, right? Because You've been putting years of your sweat, blood and tears into trying to get something to work. You have a launch window to make. Right. And there's there's just a lot riding on what you're doing just in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of prestige for the lab that you're working for. Like you really want it to work. And you can you can get a little crushed by that if you don't have the right mentality. And so I tended to think about it this way. Yes, all those things are true. Yes, we want it to work. Yes, we will work 80 hours when necessary in order to make it work. But it's not open heart surgery, right? No one's going to die on the table if something goes horribly, horribly wrong. And for me, that's kind of a, a perspective to keep it from becoming something that gives you ulcers or like raises your blood pressure too high or anything like that. Now, I don't know what open heart surgeons tell themselves in order to not be under that much stress, but that is kind of one of the perspectives that I try to keep personally. Now, when I joined the Clipper project, it was really interesting because I came onto the project as the lead flight systems engineer about six months before a major review that we call our critical design review, which is a five day affair across the entire project where we have all of the different leads for the various and sundry areas stand up and talk about here's what's going on with our design. Here's our technical issues. This is why we think we're going to get to the end game. Right. And, and the point is to get a bunch of senior people from within the lab and external to the lab to look over things with a fine tooth comb and help you find things that you haven't thought about that could become problems that you need to be spending some more time and attention. So it really is a time where you want to air all the problems, uh, all the major problems, and make sure that we're doing the right thing. And with with a spacecraft as complex as Clipper or any of the missions that we send, it's just, it's an incredible amount of information just to understand period (laughs) and synthesize and then figure out how to, to to get it across to someone in a coherent way. And also um, make sure that you, you have your handle on all the things that you should have a handle on at that time. And it was challenging. I mean, COVID started in March. I joined the project full time on July 1st. (laughs) CDR was near the end of December. So it was just crazy town. And I have never worked that many hours every day, week after week, for my entire career like it was just it was such a pressure cooker and it was interesting because it actually made me go and and do a little more thinking about mindfulness which is i mean mindfulness is kind of becoming more mainstream these days but i think about it this way it's it's a way of of appreciating the present moment no matter what you're doing and so instead of working those 80 sometimes 90 or even more hour weeks going I just I need to get through this until I can get to the point where I can relax. But finding ways to find little micro relaxations and like just breathe <laughs> through through the day. Right. And if you can just take a three minute break and figure out a way to, to be a little more centered and do that perspective shift thing and not feel like you're going to die. <laughs> it's like it really put a fine polish on my way of thinking about it that way. And um, even if there's there's so many things technically that I'm able to contribute on this mission, that I'm learning from this mission, that I'm going to continue learning um, as we go and get the spacecraft to launch and all the way out to um, Europa. But that's actually going to be one of my main lessons learned from spending time on this mission. And I didn't expect that at all, to be honest with you. Is how to calm yourself? Yeah, it's how to how to. How do I say it? And it's one of you can say paragraphs and paragraphs, but it's hard to like boil down to a specific sentence. But it's how to be okay and to still be enjoying the moment, even when you're in the midst of things that otherwise might be very, very stressing. And I'll, I'll give you an example, right? When you're presenting at CDR in front of like very senior people remotely, but <laughs> because it's COVID, and trying to 
articulate all the things that need to be said in the design, trying to make sure you're being clear so that they can give you the feedback you need in order to do the right thing. For people who aren't fans of public speaking, that could be kind of a terrifying thing. Sure. But, the, but my perspective on it was like, this is the only time in my career that I'm going to get to be the lead flight system engineer leading the team, leading my flight system engineering team through a critical design review. Like, this is it. Like, and even if it's stressful, just enjoy it because it's never going to come back again. <laughs> and uh, turn that piece of your brain on as a way to be in a more healthy headspace while getting through it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, are there any, any other tools or strategies that, that you use to kind of calm yourself down and uh, allow yourself to see, I don't know, the, the silver lining, so to speak? You know, I think one of the things, because I'm a systems engineer and like a huge part of our job is not just all the technical details and solving the problems and, and making the right choices, but it's also seeing the full context around those choices. And it's surprising to me how sometimes a lot of the things that we're doing depend very heavily on the people who are involved. And it's not its not only about personalities, right? I think I've been very fortunate over my entire career to work on teams where the people mesh very well. But it's also just about communication styles. There can be times where we're in a meeting, we have several options on the table, we're trying to figure out the right one, maybe we're under the gun in terms of time pressure, maybe we're freaking out because there's some serious technical risk associated with them and people's blood pressure can get a little elevated. <laughs> and it can be just really difficult to, to make a choice because there's a lot riding on the line sometimes. And I think it's important to remind myself and to like verbally remind the people on the team, we are all trying to do the right thing. We are all trying to get to the right goal. We all want a spacecraft that works. We can't do 10 of these options. We literally have to pick one. And, and I think realigning people that way so that people don't get so emotionally attached to a single solution when yeah. multiple solutions could actually work is important because it can knock some of that unnecessary stress off the edge while we're just trying to get some get a get a decision made. Yeah, yeah, great advice. Well, I have just one more question for you. This one I think is going to be kind of a fun one. Uh, William Shatner, or Star Trek's original Captain Kirk, and also Nichelle Nichols, Star Trek's Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Uhura, visited you and JPL uh, at some point in the past. What what was that like? Yeah, I love that you said visited you. He, he, they came to see me. <laughs> no, they, <laughs> That's right. They came to visit and they stopped by JPL as well at some point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was insanely fortunate to get to see them while they were at the lab. And because I cut my science fiction baby teeth uh, sitting next to my mom watching the original Star Trek, right? It was just how cool. Just insane. It was it was the coolest. And I was so I was such a fangirl. I wasn't even embarrassed about it. I'm like, can I please take a picture with you? I gotta tell them off. <laughs> and I love that they were both just very gracious people. Um, and I know they've had a lot of practice dealing with fans. And it's cool for them to come to the lab. I'm not gonna lie, we do really cool work there. Yeah. And so I think it was it was really, I think, charming to find ourselves in a mutual appreciation kind of environment, which was just like I was on the floor dying. <laughs> <laughs> because they love the work that we do, and I still love the things that they had done back in uh, the Star Trek land. So it was it was magical, like marvelous. <laughs> How cool. Well, that's just terrific. Tracy, thank you so much for spending some time today. You have been uh, a delight to speak with, and I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your crazy, hectic schedule to, to make some time for the, the podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.